You're listening to Wiretap with Jonathan Goldstein on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius Satellite Radio 137. Today's episode, Life and Afterlife. Monday. This morning I accidentally put my shoes on the wrong feet. It's actually something I haven't done since elementary school, and there's something about the sensation of having my left shoe on my right foot that ends up making me feel about six years old. I decide to start putting my shoes on the wrong feet on purpose whenever I desire the sudden sensation of youthfulness. To this end, I've also taken up skipping, but only late at night, usually coming back from the video store when no one else is around. This, too, makes me feel young, but also insane. The other night, while out with Zuzu, I share with her my private skipping. There's nothing sadder than seeing a grown man skip, she says. What about a grown man weeping, I ask. There might be reasons for weeping, she says with gravity, but there are no reasons for skipping. Just the same, she starts to skip home, and I skip along after her. Thursday. You know these people who tell you they bathe every night, Zuzu asks. They're lying, right? She's doing her homework while watching The Simpsons, and she can't wrap her head around the whole bathing-each-day thing. Everyone's different, I tell her. That's why there are career aptitude tests. The kids who bathe every day will be more inclined towards work in the public sector, while the once-every-other-day kids might be more comfortable hoboing, bohoing, or simply drifting. And in this way, we maintain a balanced society. Still, Zuzu's pretty certain they're lying. What's the point of bathing every day when you can just as easily lie about it, she asks. I consider explaining to Zuzu what a Zen cone is, or what character is, or something. But Grey's Anatomy is about to go on, and so I decide to spare her. Sunday. I've been experimenting with colognes lately, trying to find one that could become my signature odor. I don't know how people make such a choice. It's like choosing your eye color. It just feels too big, beyond the human pale, something that should be left to the deity. Nonetheless, I've become rather fond of Gucci. To my mind, it makes me smell like the inside of a rich old man's toiletry bag. As I walk to the video store with Zuzu, she complains about my smell. I like the way you stink normal, she says. Yes, I say, but my normal stink is too subtle. Plus, I explain to her, by leaving a heavily odorous trail, we'll be sure to find our way back home more easily. Like Hansel and Gretel with the breadcrumbs, I assure. This gets Zuzu thinking. I never could understand why that witch was so excited about eating kids, she says. She could have just eaten the chicken. Zuzu will come to learn that everyone, even witches, are always after a little change. Friday. Hetty's sick in bed with the flu. So I cook dinner. Zuzu's invited two friends over to eat. They are 13-year-old boys, and so all during dinner, they burp. Non-stop. I consider my own distaste for their gas and then chastise myself for my ethnocentric attitudes. Burping is to 13-year-old boys what smoking wild daga was to the Hottentots tribesmen. Just the same, three forkfuls into the chili, and I've completely lost my appetite. And so, I make conversation. What does it mean when you guys say someone is so random, I ask? 
It just means they'll say whatever, says friend number one between burps. Like out of nowhere, they'll just go, I like cheese, says friend number two. You mean they're absurd, I say. They all shake their heads no. What about when you say someone's emo, I ask. Is that an insult, like they're too emotional? Again, they shake their heads no. So, if I was the new kid in your class, could I just walk up to you guys and say, Hi, my name's Jonathan, and I'm emo. If you're emo, says friend number one, you don't go around saying hi and introducing yourself. That would be so random, says friend number two. After they finish eating, the kids ask what's for dessert, and I pull out some dark chocolate. Zuzu explains to me that kids don't like dark chocolate, and so I eat it at the kitchen table by myself. As I eat, I think about how I don't know anything anymore. So, why did you bring me here? And I suppose you're wondering why I've invited you down to the studio. Yeah. I wanted to ask you some questions about words that I don't understand that it seems like you and your friends use. And the reason is that we could be attracting younger listeners to the radio show. And I thought maybe the way to do it would be to, you know, use the lingo that young people use. Do young people even use the word lingo? No. Mm-hmm. And you're 13, right? Yeah. And as a teenager, do you do you think I'm old? Well, you're younger than most of my friends' parents. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. Do you think I'm hip and happening? Hip and happening? What, like, no. Okay, listen. Okay, fine. Granted, you may think that I'm not so au courant yes. uh, about what's going on. But uh, you know who we should call up, actually? You know who always who, who might actually make me look good? We should call it my dear friend, uh, Joshua Carpati. Josh is cool. He is? Yeah. He knows even less about what's going on than I do. Oh, because you know what's going on, huh? To some extent. Mm-hmm, okay. You want to give him a call? Okay, it sounds great. All right, let's get him on the line. Hang on. Hello? Josh? Yeah, hello? Um, I was just sitting here with Zuzu, having a conversation about all the words that her generation uses that I don't understand. Hey, Josh. What's up? <laughs> now, if I said, what's up? That, no, don't, don't do But why, he just did it. You thought it was funny. It just doesn't sound right when you use it. LOL, my friend. You see, LOL, for instance, you know what that means? Laugh out loud. Very good. But, uh, Josh, do you, do you know what emo means? Emo is actually a word that has its origins in the 80s, right, in, in more of our generation. It was a type of music where the lead singer would often start to cry on stage. Well, you see, now, when Zuzu and her friends use it, what they've done is they've lifted it out of the context of music, and they can talk about how someone, a particular person, is very emo. That's right. Over-emotional displays, as it were. Is that what it is, Zuzu? Yes, well, it yeah. stands for over-emotional Like, we have a friend that we say is emo because he just complains about how he has no friends and he hates school and everything. It's like, how was your day? Sucked. Does he wear eyeliner? No, but he wears, like, black nail polish. Close enough. Do you know that I wear eyeliner? You do? No, I don't, actually. (laughs) Isn't that more goth, though, to wear makeup? Well, what's the difference between goth and emo? Emos hate themselves and goth dress all in black. See, the key thing to remember, John, is that there are three distinct groups, right? There's the emos who hate themselves, the goths who hate everybody else, and the Carpatties who both hate themselves and everybody else. They're the, they're the bridge group. So now what, what is the difference between emo and screamo? 
screamo is emos who scream. Come on. Why don't you man up and admit that you've never heard the term screamo before this moment? He's not alone. I have no idea what screamo means. You don't know what screamo no, is? You see, I selected these words because Off I thought you'd be able to... internet site, yes. I, I saw What it. internet site did you go to? Clueless and out of touch.com? All right. Come on. Seriously, what does screamo mean? Screamo is literally just screaming. Shrieking, actually. Very high-pitched register. Do you guys, do you kids still use the word cool? God, cool's been around forever. What are you talking about? I mean, like, for us, I mean, we would, like, if we, you know, if something was cool or something was... Uh, awesome. Awesome. We would say dynamite. Oh, my God. That is so lame. Do you remember that, Josh? Like, I, I don't even, like, totally don't even understand where you're coming from. Can I fit in if I talk like that? If oh Josh showed up to your school and he uh, was... If he was wearing leg warmers and, like, a bandana or, I don't know, whatever the kids wear nowadays, you think he could fit in okay? Leg warmers? Maybe more like leggings. Oh, my God, I'm totally... Leggings are so, like, six months ago. I'm wearing armings. Oh, my God, that's, like, so cool. I could be, like, the new style. Yeah, totally. Oh, my God. Isn't John Goldstein, like, old? Oh, my God. Uh, he's... He thinks he's, like, talking about stuff, and he's, like, totally doesn't understand. Here's someone I can talk to, you know what I mean? It's not like, you know, these old people. I know, they're, like, so boring. They talk about their childhood like it was yesterday. Like, that's so far gone. Wednesday. My father's just received a free iPod shuffle from the bank. He doesn't know what it is, but he wears it clipped to his jacket like a lapel pin beside his Canadian flag button. I tell him to come over so I can load it up with some music for him. Give me some men to boys, Christopher Cross, and some bread, my father says, for what easy listening sandwich is complete without bread. As we wait for the songs to load, he flips through a book on my desk about cats. My father is reminded of the time a cat came onto his porch and jumped up onto his lap. Nothing like that had ever happened to me before, he says. I always regretted not having kept that cat. How long ago did that happen, I ask. My father thinks about it for a moment. Seventeen years ago, he says. Well, you can probably take comfort in the fact that the cat would probably be dead by now anyway, I say. I guess so, he says. My father is like me. He feels that no experience is entirely complete unless it has been properly regretted. A few minutes later, the iPod is loaded. My father was afraid the little earphones that came with it were too small, that they'd get stuck in his ears, so he's attached the yellow earphones from his old sports Walkman. He slips them on over his head and grooves along as David Gates encourages him to let his love go. Thursday I put the song O oh Yoko on my father's iPod. He really likes the song, until I tell him that it's about Yoko Ono. Well, what did you think O oh Yoko meant, I ask? I don't know, I thought it was nonsense, he says. Like Scooby-Dooby-Doo. My father sits on the couch glumly, wishing the song he liked was nonsense. Another bit of happiness destroyed by too much knowledge. Sunday. On the phone, my father tells me how he's recently begun using his new computer to write an autobiography. He says it'll be the story of a regular man leading a regular life. Sort of like Jaws, but without the shark, I add helpfully. It's the first time my father's ever really written, and he finds the experience exhilarating. I get lost in it, he says. He tells me about how he finally understands the ecstasy and despair that writers go through as they ply their craft. I ask him how much he's written, and he tells me he can't be sure, 
so I talk him through doing a word count. Seventy-eight words, my father says, sounding a little disappointed. And I'm already at the part where I drop out of Barber's College at 32. How am I ever going to have a whole book? Maybe you're thinking about this all wrong, I offer. Maybe you should start trimming words out until you have a perfect haiku. After we get off the phone, I consider what my haiku memoir would be. Ungrateful son puts down the phone in late winter to think of himself. I call my father back and ask if he wants to go to the Chinese buffet. Maybe it'll give you something to write about, I said, I say. And he says, sure. Hello? Hello? Dad? Yeah, how are you, Johnny? Good, good. What's up? Yeah, nothing much. So how's your day? My day was good so far. I, uh, I got up. I had my breakfast. Mm-hmm. I took a nice walk. Yeah. I played around with the computer a little bit. Are, are you continuing to try to write your book? Uh, not much, Johnny. I didn't, uh, since I spoke to you last, I don't think I really did much else. So uh, I'm going to get back to it. I've I got to get the urge again. <laughs> uh-huh. I mean, I've, I've got a lot in me to say, and I, I'm, yeah, I should sit down and put it to paper, but I get lazy. I want to watch a movie. I, you know what I mean? Yeah. I get other distractions. I think that's a very common feeling among I, writers. I, I, I have no uh, discipline. Well, you know what Balzac used to do, eh? Yeah. He would uh, strip himself naked, lock himself in his study without his clothes. And couldn't go out. And that way he couldn't go out. And they just, all they had was, a, they didn't have a typewriter either. He had just a quill and a, and a piece of paper. Ha, has your has your typing improved as you've, as you've started yeah, writing this? Yeah, one thing your typing has improved, I'm faster. I'm, I'm, it's like, you know, when you use a calculator long enough, you know where the numbers are. Uh-huh. I can I can go back. I can separate. I can put a comma in. I I, I, I can even have my my spelling checked. I don't even have to go to the dictionary. I got a spell check on there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so convenient, you know. It's amazing. And uh, and did you think of a title? No. Doesn't a lot of times they tell you author tells you write the book first and think of it to figure out the title later. Yeah, titles can be difficult. You know, something fitting, but nothing too much flamboyant or whatever you want to call it. Are there titles that you think are too flamboyant? Uh, you know, I mean, the old days, they wrote books like The Pride and the Prejudice, you know, mm-hmm. things like that, you know. They were uh, very dramatic titles. For for the title of your book, if you had to have uh, two words like that, the something and the something, what would it be? The street. Why? How come the street? Because we always lived on a street. But everybody lives on a street. I know. It's plain. Like me, ordinary. <laughs> but, but wait, the street and the what? Just the street. No, I mean, if it was going to be like Pride and Prejudice or The Sound and the okay. Fury, it would be the... Oh. Uh, the street... The street and... The cold winter. The street and the cold winter. <laughs> I don't know. I like the way you say it. I don't know. Well, the reason I chose the cold winter is because I started off as being born in a very cold winter. Yeah. Should I read some stuff from my book? Yeah, that would be great. All you right, want to do I that? I got the paper here. Handy? Yeah, I have it. Okay. Let me get it. It's right here. It's a good thing I printed it out. Okay. I just have really one page, Johnny. That's all. Yeah. Let me just go down and sit down. This is my book, all right? Here we go. Yeah. Like everyone, I was born under ordinary circumstances in a borough of New York known as the Bronx. I was born on Saturday morning in December, 1934, which happened to have been an exceptionally cold winter. However, this is of no great consequence. 
Of great significance was the time in which I entered the world. My father could not seem to tear himself out of the, the depression. He worked as a barber and was more out of work than in. My father could be both volatile and childlike. The childlike side irritated my mother as he would act impetuously, such as bringing home a rhesus monkey or a snapping turtle called Felix, which we kept in the bathtub and fed raw fish. We finally had to get rid of Felix when he clamped down on my finger and was pried loose by my father as I screamed hysterically. Of course, for me, this was one of the qualities that I loved about him. He was a passionate man who could display warmth and affection, and at one point, when I was about five, we moved to Staten Island to Benton Tuesday, 4 a.m. I wake up and can't get back to bed. I wonder, am I a good enough person to get into heaven? I mean, how does it all get tallied up anyway? Is my support of the bacon industry counterbalanced by the fastidious recycling of my scotch bottles? In gas stations and convenience stores, I take a penny more often than I leave a penny. But I'm definitely more than a generous tipper, even in buffet-type situations. Wednesday, 3.45 a.m. For all we know about the workings of the universe, entry into heaven might be solely determined by shoe size. Nines go to hell and elevens go to heaven, where their snowshoe-like feet can tramp above the clouds without falling through. Lying in the dark, sleepless, I am reminded of Grushenka in the Brothers Karamazov, who believed she'd be saved because she'd once given a peasant an onion. All it took was a single pure deed, she believed. I wish I had her confidence. Thursday, 4.30 a.m. I've always held on to the irrational hope that in my final days I might suddenly transform into one of those Zorba the Greek kind of guys. I wonder if you could spend your whole life never coming 10,000 miles within seizing the day and then finally, at the last minute, turn it all around and redeem everything. In my final hours, I want to wander into the backyard in my deathbed bathrobe, and despite everything left undone, spread out my arms and do one of those life-embracing Zorba dances. Look at the big dancing phony, God will probably say, watching in heaven. It's going to take more than showmanship to get into paradise on my watch. Watch. Friday, 5 a.m. It would eat me up knowing guys I took gym with in high school, guys who told me I ran like a girl, were up there with the angels laughing it up while I was walking around with boils on the soles of my feet, some guy with a pitchfork telling me what to do. That would be one of the hardest things about being in hell, not seeing guys I took gym class with, and just knowing that it's because they did a couple small things differently than me. That would just be the worst. That and the constant burning sensation that Dante went on about. Saturday. My friend Sean is in town from Boston. He's a poet, and he's telling me about one of his recent readings. I have a real fear of doing readings, I say. As far as people's fears go, he says, public speaking ranks higher than death and disease. It's not the actual speaking in public that I'm afraid of, I say. I just fear that no one will show up, because that would be depressing. Sean thinks it over. It only takes an audience of three to crowd surf, he says. This is an encouraging thought, though later that night, unable to sleep, I imagine myself, 
a microphone clutched in my fist as my parents and Hetty, in an otherwise empty hall, awkwardly hoist my drooping corpse above their shoulders. In my mind, it does not look like body surfing, so much as it does some nightmarish version of the Pieta. I shake the image from my mind, and I go back to searching the week for a single pure deed, a solitary onion, to help ease my mind into slumber. After some time, it strikes me. I gave a sympathetic look to a man who just slipped on some ice. But still, sleep does not come. May I speak to the head of the household? I'm the head of the office here. Okay. Uh, what, what is your name? Jonathan. Hello, Jonathan. I'm calling from the Atheist Club. We are a non-profit... Did you, I'm uh, sorry, did you say... You said the Atheist Club? The Atheist Club. We are non-believers. We are, uh, of course, a non-profit, though, so we are trying to start a television network to reach all those believers who, who maybe have a certain religiosity. That, that makes them suffer, and uh, they might be freed and helped by an atheist point of view. So, if I've got this straight, what, so what you do is you—I mean, or, you, or, or rather, you—what what, what is it that you do? I'll tell you my story. Uh, for so many years, I had tried to get uh, the love and acceptance and uh, <laughs> of a. Uh, God, and then suddenly I realized, wait a minute, <laughs> I never hear back from him, uh, and I lost my home, my job, my family, and now I realize it's up to me <laughs> to decide what is sinful and what is not, and it's just great. It's just, it's just fantastic, and I just want to bring that to people like you, and I assume you are an atheist. Can I, can I write you down as an atheist as well? Well, I, I'm I'm sort of on the fence, I guess. Uh, I guess I'm w- w- I guess I'm agnostic. Oh, oh, that's a dirty word. <laughs> Somebody hasn't hasn't really thought about it. Hasn't really, you know, because uh, have you done any testing in your in your own life? How do you mean testing? Well, for example, when you say if there is some sort of omnipotent thing out there. I like a sign of its existence. Right. I mean, maybe I did that sort of thing when I was a kid, but it doesn't seem like God is doling out signs so much these days. Um, well, that there you go. <laughs> I caught yourself. You caught yourself in your own. <laughs> God isn't giving any signs. <laughs> can, can, can I ask you something? Because I mean, you know, I've always kind of. I guess I've uh, never. I've never really gotten any calls from you guys as like proselytizing calls. Oh, I guess I've. We got, the community has changed so much. It is, we are no longer those, you know, intellectual blowhards, <laughs> you know, constantly. You know, we have picnics. We are currently trying to uh, get a cruise going. I love to dance myself. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I love the, <laughs> we have a lot of different interests because we love the joy of being alive in this moment because there is no afterlife. <laughs> there is no afterlife. I mean, are, are there are there any things that you're that that you're prohibited from doing? Oh no, uh, no, no. What what's something that you've never done that that your agnostic <laughs> code of ethics says you shouldn't do? 
I mean, uh, if we're talking frankly, I mean, I've I, I've I've had this image of myself lately skidooing naked across the tundra, but you know, I, I don't know, just. But it sounds like uh, maybe <laughs> you are going to be a difficult convert. <laughs> well, how, how successful? Uh, I mean, how successful have you been in in in, in converting people? Well, I tell you what, um, it, it's real, it, it, it has been difficult, if I may be uh, honest with you, well, you have been so honest with me, I really appreciate that vulnerability of sharing your, your skidoo, uh, it has been difficult, uh, people do like the, the idea that, the, that there's mystery, <laughs> yeah. everybody loves a good mystery, uh, people love but, you know, all I can do is make a few calls a day. And believe me, I only do this a couple times a day because uh, I, I just do, you know, what feels good to me. And then I go off, and I love to hop the hot tub. What I do with some other um, atheists is I just go from hot tub to hot tub during the day. And um, I, I earn some money on the yeah, side. I, through I, I, sh- you know, I, I have got a mountain of paperwork here I should probably get back to. Okay. Um, but okay. It was. I, I wish you luck with your with your, whatever Listen, you're you doing. It's been there. a joy to talk to. I wish you all the best in, in your trail of tears, your life of suffering that you've created for yourself, thinking that what you do matters, and <laughs> it truly doesn't. You know, we're just living here, and it's just a chaos of uh, molecules and atoms that kind of came together at the right second, and and yahoo, you know, <laughs> let's have a good time. Yeah. So, anyways, I'll let you no. go. I'll let All you right. Well, yeah, well, well, thanks a lot. You uh, have a meaningless day, Jonathan. And God bless. On Wiretap today, you heard Suzu O'Neill, Joshua Carpati, Buzz Goldstein, and Maria Bamford, whose inspirational web show can be watched at superdeluxe.com. Wiretap is produced by Jonathan Goldstein, Mira Burt-Wintonic, and Carolyn Warren. Production assistance from Crystal Duhane. Reach us through our website at cbc.ca slash wiretap.